That's weird. My alarm didn't go off. Wait. Oh my God, I'm going to miss my chemistry quiz. Oh my God, why do I have a chemistry quiz? I'm not even in high school. I haven't been in high school in years. Am I am I dreaming? Is this is this a nightmare? Oh, thank goodness. I have my trusty issue of Fangoria, one of the premier brands in horror. Fangoria has been delivering quality magazines since 1979, and each collectible issue features exclusive articles about your favorite monsters, as well as up-and-coming terrors. Be sure to check out the Fangoria website for subscriptions and a bunch of cool merch. And while you're there, use promo code WOULDYOUDIESHOW for 20% off your entire order. That's right. 20% off your entire order. Applies to subscription and one-time orders. Applies to the first subscription order only. Now, it's time to talk about Freddy Krueger. Look at that subtle off-white coloring. The tasteful thickness of it. The blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. You hang up on me again, I'll cut you like a fish, understand? Be my victim. Hello, my name is Austin Torres, and welcome to the Would You Die podcast, the show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. The air is cooler, the leaves are falling, it is finally October, and like last year, this month is dedicated to slashers. That's right, it's the second annual Slashtober. Last year, I dedicated the entire month to the boogeyman, the face of Halloween, the OG slasher himself, Michael Myers. This year, I'm talking about literally every other slasher. I'm sorry, Mikey My My, but you had a whole month to yourself last year. I can't I can't talk about you this year. It's not happening. On this episode of Slashtober 2, we're talking about the bastard son of a hundred maniacs, the Springwood slasher himself. The very man of our dreams, Freddy Krueger. And today, I am joined by a horror author known for his novels Resurrected, Bloodshed, and Clandestine. He's also a Nightmare on Elm Street super fan, a.k.a. probably one of the best people I could have about talking about this subject. He plays a huge role in the fantastic documentary Fred Heads. Please welcome my friend, Anthony Brownlee. Hey, what's up, everybody? What's going on? I am so excited to have you on the show. We've actually met in person at Horror Hound a couple months ago. So normally on this podcast, I talk to people through Zoom only. So I actually have met you before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, that was actually a pretty great show. That was a lot of fun. I had a blast and I'm super happy that you're on the show. When did you first kind of like get into horror, like start realizing you're a horror fan? Ooh, well, we got to go back many, many moons ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, when I was about three years old, I remember one of my earliest memories. I remember uh, my dad watching Michael Jackson's Thriller. Oh, and nice. I have that vague memory of just watching him transform into that, that were cat. And <laughs> I remember, I don't know, at three, you don't really have that particular fear of like the boogeyman under the bed or at least I didn't or mm -hmm. you know I just knew when I was watching it it was just weird it was different and 
I think him turning into that werecat because you saw the complete transformation. It wasn't like, you know, cutaways and, you know, you saw his eyes change. You saw his fingernails growing. You saw his, like, jaw elongating and, you know, all the hair coming on his face. That actually scared me more than, like, you know, the the zombies crawling out of their graves. There's something just about watching him do that complete transformation that freaked me out at three years old to where... I don't know, maybe it just like, you know, just kind of got under my skin where I was like, oh, that was like, you know, that was creepy. That was freaky, you know? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, but I actually, two years later, that's when I actually saw A Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. So Nightmare on Elm Street was actually my first horror movie, whereas Thriller was just the first horror thing I remember seeing, you know, my first first actual memory. But Nightmare on Elm Street is what actually made me scared of the boogeyman because i was very much into dreams and you know i had such had such a vivid imagination as a kid you know leading into my you know writing stories as a young kid but nightmare something about that you know the horror genre you know just because i think freddy hits me on such a different level Mm -hmm. because you have to sleep you know there's no you know hiding out or you know calling the police or you know, something like that, because he's in your mind. You right. Know? And you can only run from sleep for so long. It got under my skin in a different way. And it stayed there as a kid. I mean, there were just nights I'd wake up in the middle of the night and just think about Nightmare on Elm Street. And then I couldn't go back to sleep. And that happened for years as a kid. And it kind of just shaped me, you know. So when I started watching other horror movies when as a kid, it's almost like I wanted that same high or that same rush that A Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street gave me because that just hit on so many different levels that it it kind of set a standard for me, I guess you could say, to what oh, yeah. I wanted to feel when I was watching other horror movies. So Nightmare was definitely that film that, you know, locked me in, that made me pretty much just drawn to the horror genre. Yeah, that's awesome. I was a I was a lot older when I first watched A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I was in high school. I oh. so I never Freddy Freddy's like one of the most popular movie characters of all time. So it's not like I didn't know who Freddy was, but I never really encountered Freddy when I was growing up. I don't know. I don't know why, but like I never saw his movies on T on on the TV. I didn't really see too many Freddies at like trick or treat time. But for me, at least in terms of like horror icons and slashers, I uh, my boogeyman was my was Michael Myers. (laughs) (laughs) For whatever reason, I always found his movies playing on TV. (laughs) Right. And there was always a Michael um, trick or treating. So um, that that was the one who scared me the most when I was when I was little. But. I do remember the first time I watched A Nightmare on Elm Street and I was in high school. I watched it with my mom, actually, because I was kind of branching out to the horror genre and she knew she knew Nightmare on Elm Street was a banger. So so we bought the Blu-ray and then we watched it. And I remember I remember specifically seeing uh, um, spoiler alert for a movie released in 1984. But uh, Tina's death. Yes. Oh, that one still gets me just and really it's the whole lead up it's the whole build up to it you know where she's just hearing like the little (laughs) rocks hit the window and then you see that last one that cracks into the 
the glass is a like a tooth, yeah. you know, and it's like all that, and then her him whispering her name, and then her, you know, going into the backyard and just and it's like you your whole body just tenses up, and it's like you're just like oh, and you're just like don't you're just like don't do it, don't go back there, and then that that silhouette hits the hits the wall and you're just like oh god like <laughs> you know you just know it's it's about to just you know shit's about to hit the fan like right then and there <laughs> and you're just like oh and even as an adult now that scene just kind of I mean I'm pretty desensitized to horror movies now I've just watched so many <laughs> over the years where it's just like oh, I can they're like lullabies almost I can fall asleep watching a horror movie but that alley scene still just kind of gets under my skin still every time and Anytime I randomly have a nightmare, which I don't really have too many nightmares much anymore, but when I do and it's about nightmare, it's always in some interpretation of the alley scene. It's like no matter mm. what. <laughs> I, I'm sad. I've never had a nightmare on Elm Street nightmare or dream. Oh, wow. Those are the, the craziest ones. I've like. never had one. And I love the <laughs> franchise. I know I'm a li- I was a, a later watcher watching it in high school. And it, I'm pretty sure I was older high school when I first watched Nightmare. But I love the franchise. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think it's one of the most creative, one of the most interesting horror franchises that there is. But I guess I don't really dream about horror too often. I actually just don't dream a lot if I'm being perfectly honest. It's rare oh, that wow. I have a dream. Oh wow. That's different. I yeah, I'm always dreaming. Like my my family always jokes with me. They always tell me that I don't have dreams, I have movies. Because yeah. I'm like always just like, you know, they always just seem so vivid. And I used to be, you know, somebody who wrote down his dreams like in a dream journal. Mm-hmm. I did that for years and years. And some of those images that I had would always, you know, find their way into my stories in some way. Like, you know, I use like certain sections of something I thought was really good and, you know, put that into a story that, you know, fit, obviously. So I always relied on my dreams for, you know, a lot of things. And then when I was probably about a teenager, I found out Wes Craven did the same thing. And that was, I love that. That was so interesting to me because he's basically my kind of like idol I've idolized him since I was five, since I first saw Nightmare on Elm Street, because I wanted to create stories that gave me the same fear as that film did. So I wanted the somebody to read my books and have that same type of fear when it came to my horror books. And he did a lot of films, especially Nightmare, that were so deep. You know, they oh yeah had such a deeper meaning. And I know I'm sort of, well, I guess the best way to put it, you know, sort of like the I don't see Nightmare on Elm Street as a slasher. Actually never looked at it that way because it mm-hmm. is so deep. You know, when I think of slasher movies, I think more of like Friday the 13th or Prime. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, for sure. You know, things like that. And and even Halloween, I see those more as slashers, you know, but Nightmare is so different, you know, because Freddy's in your mind. He can, you know, manipulate, you know, what, those things that give you good feelings and, you know, that give you that rest when you are sleeping and, and, you know, literally turn them into nightmares. And one of the best examples I can think of and when you're talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is in uh, part three, mm-hmm. when Kristen, you know, later on in the movie, when they're all 
in the quiet room and then Freddie attacks him and then she wakes up back in her room again and she thinks that she basically just had a really long nightmare. And that whole scene with her mom, you know, when we first see it, her mom's very dismissive of her and not really taking her seriously, not listening. And it's kind of like, uh, like, you know, you kind of feel bad for her. And, you know, this is probably the, the, basically the relationship that she always has with her mom. But this particular instance, she's, you know, very nice and sympathetic and, you know, Kristen gives her a hug and her mom's just smiling, you know, she's glad to see her and, you know, basically almost kind of tucks her in a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of like you can imagine that's probably how Kristen had wanted it to be. And Freddie knew that because he's in her mind. Yeah. And so he manipulated it to where she thinks, oh, like this is, you know, this is so amazing. I'm, I'm you know, I feel really close to my mom now. And then all of a sudden he takes that away, literally, you know, uh, you know, in her nightmare, you know, killing her mom and then turning her back into what she basically, you know, know knows her as, you know, it's this very yeah. just dismissive person, you know, and that's just like, oh, you know, and that doesn't, that didn't really, I didn't really think about it that way till I was a little bit older, like, you know, my, you know, kind of teenage years, early 20s, because, you know, when you're younger, you just see a horror movie and you're just like, you know, but you don't really think of, you know, the deeper meanings until you're a little bit older and get a better understanding of the world and, you know, have your own right. experiences. So I've always thought that Nightmare was much more than a slasher. You know, it goes beyond that. Um, I like to think about it as dramatic horror. That's what I think about my horror books is dramatic horror. For sure. Yeah, I I, I think that's a really interesting take because now i'm like kind of chewing that on that something i'm a huge nerd about is uh um movie genres and Mm -hmm. like not that not that i think everything needs to be in a rigid classification i don't think that but i love movies because so many movies are so many different things like i'm going to use predator as an example that's a you look at it and it's a pure 1980s testosterone heavy like army action movie right but it's also a science fiction slasher because the predator is a slasher yeah like the predator is more of a slasher than freddy (laughs) krueger yeah definitely Um, brutalizing it was very brutal oh yeah and uh but like i i love movies because i think i think there's so many ways to and there's not a truly right or wrong way well Okay, I take that back. I don't think anyone should list something like Martyrs as a comedy. So there are some <laughs> wrong take, But for the most part, it's like there's a lot of movies can be a lot of different things. I really like your point that Nightmare is not a slasher because I'm really playing with that in my head. Although I am going to kind of because I think Nightmare is similar to I'm going to compare it to The Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. which on the surface is a completely different movie. But I think like A Nightmare on Elm Street is like this dramatic, almost kind of psychological horror as well. Yeah, I but I think Freddy. But I but I do think Freddy Krueger is a slasher villain, even though he's not always slashing and the movies themselves don't really follow the slasher tropes that you see in like Halloween or Friday the 13th or Black Christmas. Right. I do think Freddy kind of fits the character mold, but his movies don't f- fit the tropes of the other slashers, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I totally get what you mean. So that's why I say that a lot of people, 
and like you were saying, like everybody will see it differently, you know, how yeah. they interpret it. You know, I've had people tell me they think Psycho is a slasher film. And for me, that is beyond a slasher, too. That was more of a psychological type of horror film, like kind of like in that same realm of Silence of the Lambs. But to them, they said, yeah. they said, nope, that's that's a slasher movie to me. It, they would just say it's a different type of slasher. And, you know, and they could be right on some level. You know, I don't like yeah. to tell... I'm not the type that goes, no, that's wrong. And, you know, thinking I know it all and because this and that, you know, I'm not that type of person and I'm not that type of fan. You know, everybody right. get something out of a particular movie. Like the director has it a certain way and he sees it this way, but then he gives it to the audience and it's no longer his. And exactly. So they all see it in a completely different way. That's how I look at my books. I may have written it this way and I've given it to people or, you know, people have bought it and, and you know, they have looked at it you know 10 times differently than you know what i have on the page but that's their interpretation right because we all bring our own experiences and whatnot into our readings of different art really and i and, think that's why yeah. it's so important so important for art no matter what it is to be explored that way yes because you get so many different ideals and how the way other people think which i think is really cool yeah. And um, while I do love myself a good slocky slasher that mm -hmm. only kill cares about the kills, mm -hmm. I think a lot of slasher movies are uh, fantastic. They're very thoughtful. Like John Carpenter's Halloween, I think, is a prime example. Yeah, but like absolutely. Few, a few years earlier with Black Christmas, that's a, an amazing film. It's a beautiful film and horrifying. Mm -hmm. Right. And that even predates Halloween. Yeah. Like a lot of times people forget that. They're, I've, I've had people, they're like, wasn't Black Christmas like, was that like 1980? And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's very mid 70s. And they're just like, that was before Halloween. It's like, they, it's like yeah. either they've just like totally forgotten or they just, they really had no idea. So yeah, that predates Halloween. I think that's, it's 74. I think it's going to turn 50 next year. Yeah, I think it is 74. And I remember a long time ago, just remember reading something about how when John Carpenter, because I know he had used Black Christmas as kind of like a temp, a, well, a bit of a template in some of yeah. Halloween. And I remember the early drafts, apparently they had thought that they had wanted to make Halloween a sequel to Black Christmas because you technically never really find out who the killer was in Black Christmas. You know, it's, you know, for the characters, it's assumed that it was, you know, Jess's boyfriend. But we all know that, you know, toward, at the end there, it didn't seem like that was true. And then they were going to use that to where whoever that killer was had went to this other town and now he's causing mayhem in Haddonfield. You know, and I thought when I read that, I was like, I mean, I don't know how true it was, but I, I remember reading it and I thought that was actually pretty cool just because it had some of the same, you know, concepts with, you know, using the POV shot mm -hmm. um, like that and make the next the killer like very mysterious. You don't know where he is, where he came from. He just starts killing, you know, Black Christmas, this killer right. just starts killing for no no apparent motive that we know about just like michael myers he was here wrecked havoc in hattonfield and then he disappeared and it was like you know so i thought that was actually a pretty cool you know kind of, if they had done it that way i thought that would have been really cool as well yeah and i'm a huge halloween fan so i love i love the way it did end up turning out but it's just like i love when when an artist kind of just is honest about their influences because you can see and speaking of influences, Freddy Krueger's a really influential horror villain, I think. 
Absolutely, yeah. He definitely defined a generation, like, for sure. And there's a lot of horror icons who I think, I don't think they'll be the, I don't think they'd be the same way if it wasn't for, like, I think Freddy's influence shows clearly on them. And um, I'm, I'm interested in your opinions on the ones who I think Freddy influenced either subconsciously or consciously. But I think Chucky is a big one. Mm -hmm. I could see that. Because Chucky's got personality. He's kind of a dick. <laughs> yeah. And that that was one of the main reasons I would have pointed out. I think Freddy is what gave later killers that, like you said, that personality, that that zest that, you know, not just, you know, because Michael Myers kind of really started like the silent killer who never talks. Yeah. You find out who he is once he's unmasked or she's unmasked, uh, whoever it might have been. But Freddy's the one that I feel gave those later, you know, villains their that extra thing about them that, you know, you can laugh with them, but at the yeah. same time, you're scared of them. Um, and, you know, it began that trend of where almost the the villain, you know, stops becoming the villain and becomes the anti-hero. And so now right. the audiences are cheering for that person to you know tear the next character to shreds as opposed to wanting them to escape i think i think um jason Voorhees falls under that camp all the time and that was a unintentional pun <laughs> but uh <laughs> like i mean perfect opportunity to talk about freddy versus jason jason becomes that anti-hero because freddy is that <laughs> freddy is that eve i love freddy but i think freddy's the perfect villain in freddy versus jason Mm -hmm. this diabolical i like to call him like that it's like the perfect yeah. word for it. it's that diabolical menace you know he was you know he was pulling the strings basically you know on jason and and you can kind of go back and forth or however you see it mm -hmm. you know they say freddie versus jason but i was one of the people that saw freddie versus jason more of a of a freddie movie or more of a nightmare movie even though i consider it in its own little universe even though it kind of does go back to you know the past movies mm -hmm. but he just i felt like it was his story i mean he obviously you know he was narrating it you see yeah. him talking about what the parents did to him and then what he did after and how he's going to be the one to come back and he's using this puppet of jason Voorhees to do his bidding so he can you know do what he you know needs to do so i've always kind of leaned more of it being more of a freddie movie but like i said that's just you know how i saw it I actually see it as as like Jason being the hero, the main character in a nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, because even the, the main characters are trying to like get Jason to basically kill Freddy. Right. You know? <laughs> and it's like and you kind of root for Jason. It's like whenever they do the versus movies, like in Godzilla versus Kong, like the filmmakers are pushing you to root for Kong. Mm -hmm. Um, he has a bit more He's definitely underdog to Godzilla, and Jason was as deadly and massive as Jason is. He's the underdog to Freddy Krueger, oh, and man. and then like Alien versus Predator did it too. Like I I would never call a Predator an underdog to anything, but with all those xenomorphs, like okay, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> the aliens are definitely taking the villain role in that matchup. <laughs> yeah, those were wild. Those were seriously wild. There was so much going on in those movies. <laughs> I love all of these movies we're talking about, though, right now. <laughs> yeah. And see, and I felt like for a long time, that's when a lot of those characters have become more of the anti-heroes. Because if you look like yeah. early on, it was the main characters. Like the first Nightmare on Elm Street, that's about Nancy Thompson. 
Yes. Yeah. And Freddie is hardly in this film. He comes in when he needs to come in. But that story is about, you know, Nancy Thompson and her struggles and how she goes through the story as this typical teenage girl and basically at the end becomes this warrior. And, you know, she's only supposed to be 15 years old. And I think that's always why I was drawn to her, even as a kid. Like, I just remember saying, you know, at five years old, I like this brown haired girl. because I didn't know what her name was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I was like, I want this brown haired girl to win. I really like her. I remember I was so pumped for her. I wanted her to, to win and, you know, take him on. And she did. And in that first watch, Nancy Thompson became my favorite heroine of all time, even to this day now. You know, pretty much like 30 years later, I am still a Nancy Thompson fan. I always say when, when people say, oh, you love Nightmare on Street, let Freddy Krueger try your favorite. I was like, he's my favorite villain. Yes, but I'm always more drawn to Nightmare on Elm Street because of Nancy Thompson. Yeah. And I think there's a reason why the consensus seems to be the Nancy Thompson movies are usually people's top three. Right. The, the Nancy trilogy, as they call them. Yeah, <laughs> I, it is my top three, if I'm being honest. Right, uh, definitely. But except mine would be one seven. I got to think. I think my I, honestly, I think mine's the same. Yeah, because New Nightmare. I love like, I love whew. New Nightmare. Oh, oh, my God. That film is like a diamond in the rough. Wes outdid himself in that film. You know, it was like the first of oh, its yeah. kind, for especially for horror. Nobody would ever, you know, think to do that, something like that for a horror movie. And I think that's why along, you know, when it first came out, it didn't quite find its audience, even though I loved right. it when I yeah. first saw it, you know, it just couldn't quite find its audience because it was so unique that audiences didn't know what to do with it because, you know, we'd had all these other films and then we had MTV Freddy kind of come in starting with part four, you know, they're expecting right. something different. And then this like, bam, you know, something brand new and like only West, you know, can come in, you know, six films later and create something completely different and it just you know basically just shake the horror genre and basically a precursor to Scream as I've always seen it because Scream was very meta in its own right and yeah. Wes Craven's New Nightmare was extremely meta so it it influenced even more of a generation I think what some people may even realize you know I, I know over the years that it, it has found its audience I find that more people like it just how Nightmare 2 didn't really find its audience too you know right. years later the same thing happened with new nightmare more people love it now than i think they did back then just because now we've seen so many horror movies and so many different types of horror movies that they're starting to realize how unique and how great that film actually is as an entry into the horror genre you know yeah it's so creative and i especially love it because i'm someone who well i'm a filmmaker I love stuff that kind of shows behind the scenes a bit, mm -hmm. which maybe that's the wrong word because it's not a documentary or anything. But I just think it's cool to have Wes Craven playing himself, oh, okay. uh, <laughs> talking about writing and then just kind of playing with the idea of because to me, New Nightmare, New Nightmare is kind of asking, why do we make horror movies? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's like a subtext going on. And uh, I think yeah, absolutely. Well, Wes Craven was a genius, you know, he was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a teacher, like, you know, before he even did yeah. any films. Like, he didn't really start directing until he was, I want to say, like, 29, 30 years old. So he was older, you know, an older director. Well, I won't say, like, older, but, you know, most of the time you think about directors getting their feet wet, you know, they're in their, you know, 
late teens and early 20s making these mm-hmm. you know movies but he was already kind of established in life and you know he had a different mindset somebody who was a teacher you know that's very yeah you know you could see that come through his work because he always liked to be different you know because he never wanted nightmare to be a franchise he wanted nightmare to be one film uh because in his mind you know just from watching his interviews he always thought that if you do too much it kind of downplays or waters down the original concept which it i mean which it did you know yeah which i can say you know because if you watch nightmare one and then watch nightmare six those two films are so far removed from each other when you think about what he originally created especially as the character of freddy krueger who was pretty much off screen who was in the dark you know who wasn't shown on screen that often to him basically being you know front and center and being the voice and you know the face of you know the franchise or you know the movies so it, i mean it does always do that because it you know it's i honestly feel like as as you know when films like go on they adapt to what's actually going on in life yeah so initially freddie was like the child killer you know who murdered all these you know kids on elm street you know kids you know kid kids and it's like the more you get removed from that and making him more comical, it's like you almost forget that. And it's like you don't right. think about his teenage victims where it's like, oh, that's OK, you know, because it's teenagers. And then you almost forget that he was a child killer because right. we watched him be goofy, you know, later on in the franchise. And it kind of does something to our minds where he's like, oh, OK, I can I think that's pretty much what he he meant when he was talking about going too much into the story and going too, or not going too much, but going too long into the story. And, and I completely agree with that. And I think it's really interesting because I think he took that to heart when, um, when he ended up making three sequels to scream Mm -hmm. because I think scream was able to avoid that problem that nightmare had. I mean, scream still dilutes a little bit over time because, Every franchise does. Right. But but I think what Wes Craven avoided with Scream that he didn't get the chance to with Nightmare. And I think if he doesn't, you know, learn this on Nightmare, we don't get Scream the way we have it. But Scream doesn't have like a central villain, hmm. really. Because like yeah. Ghostface, I love Ghostface, but Ghostface isn't really a character. He's, right. he's like vibes. Ghostface right. is a vibe, you know? <laughs> right. He's just, yeah, it's just an image because... Mm-hmm. It's a different person under there every time. And with Wes Craven's Scream films, it's always Sydney who is the face mm-hmm. and the main character. And I know we're starting to veer from that with the new Scream films, but something I enjoy about those is it's still not it's still not making Ghostface the star. It's the right. star is Melissa Barrera's Sam and Jenna Ortega's Tara. And um, Chad and Mindy, like those are the stars, right? Uh, of screen, even though Ghostface still gets posters, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, but I don't think the average, like the average mainstream person, even like we're horror fans, and most mm-hmm. of the people listening are horror fans. But it's easy to forget that most people don't know Ghostface is the name of this killer in Scream. They just call right. him Scream. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and that's 
that's totally how I feel, like, especially with these new ones, because that's what I really loved about part six was mm-hmm. that, you know, that whole core four aspect. You know, to me, that was very yeah. West Craven, even though, you know, West isn't here to, you know, write it or direct it. That's very West Craven to centralize those main characters and for them to have that bond. And that's what Nightmare had to me because Nightmare, you know, typically in a horror movie, you see like, you know, you have your kind of like your good characters and then you may have like those characters that kind of go against the main character, like, you know, like a bad girl or a bad guy, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, like Rachel and uh, Kelly Meeker and, you know, Halloween 4 where they had that, that drama going on, you know, stuff like that. But you don't really see that in Nightmare because the kids are, they're drawn to each other because they know they have to watch out for one another because of this, you know, evil that they basically are sh- involuntary sharing because Freddy's yeah. in all their dreams. And those characters in Scream 6, you know, you get to see them really bond and, you know, talk. And that's what I always kind of wish we could have got more of in those early ones because, you know, even though you had Sydney and Randy survive, we didn't really get to see them kind of have that that connection you know it was there but you know next time we see him we're in college and sydney kind of has new friends and a new boyfriend and so she's kind of going this way but randy's going this way a little bit but they had that thing that links them but you know it and then when he dies you know she's not even there right so when i think of the last time that sydney sees randy in the movie like when they're actually together it's like at that party scene that only thing I can think about. And it's like, man, you know, you don't really get to see them really connect, connect like that. And that's what I love about Scream 6. I feel like that was the first time we really got to see that. Because I've always loved the stories where, okay, before we get to Scream 2, we're in the middle of Scream 1 and Scream 2 to where, you know, maybe they could have had conversations at night calling each other, you know, I can't sleep because I'm thinking about it, you know, and they're leaning on each other and, you know, certain ways. I love those stories because it makes it richer and it makes you fall in love with the characters even more. Yeah, so that's what I try to do with my books. I, I really want you to fall in love with the characters and be rooting for them. I remember something Stephen King said about when the new It movies came out, how he felt that those films were really bringing back the old ways of when we rooted for the good guys and we wanted to demolish the bad guy. Yeah. You know, so those are the stories out because I'm always the one that roots for the, the heroes and the heroines. I've never been oh yeah kill that you know have the villain like you know kill that person do this you know i always root for the good guys because that because i was actually bullied you know growing up you know mm-hmm. uh which you know kind of had its own you know shape of how my life went as a kid and you know I, i've always rooted for the underdogs the people that don't really aren't really seen or heard too much but then they can somehow still make a stand and be you know loud without actually being loud right that makes sense so that's to me what nightmare does and i think it does it really well because i always look at it as a template whenever i'm writing i always use nightmare in some way you know as a template you know in some way shape or form because i've just really felt like wes that he really got it right oh yeah wes craven's a really big influence for me when i'm writing are directing one of my short films. Uh, I always kind of, because Scream is one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. I like to go back to that film to just kind of be like, so this is what Wes did here. You know, you just kind of see what my heroes did, you know? Exactly. And he, that kid, that's why, like I said, I think that's why I connect more to the ones that he touched 
in the franchise one, three, and seven specifically. Yeah. I felt like those were very, very unique and had that darkness that he originally wanted. Because I don't know if you ever read the original script to Nightmare Three. Have you ever read that? No. Oh man, yeah. The the first draft, the '86 draft with him and Bruce Wagner, they wrote that together. It was completely different from the film that we that we know. Like Nancy, she's not a psychologist at mm-hmm. all. She's just and she's very much more to who she was from the end of Nightmare One, carrying that same kind of presence with her. And she's basically on this mission trying to find her dad because he's been missing. Mm-hmm. And they're not estranged in this. Like she's she's trying to find him. And on the way, she runs into Neil Gordon. Uh, well, in that script, he's actually named Neil Goldman. Which you know, which is just—I mean, it's just random, but uh, <laughs> it was—it was changed, and they actually kind of—he kind of helps her when he realizes that she's a little lost and trying to find her way, and she ends up staying at his house, and a lot of the things that happened to Nancy or Kristen in the theatrical version happened to Nancy, so Nancy's the one who's almost eaten by the Freddy Snake in Wes's original script, and he—he he takes Nancy to work with him. Just kind of like out of, you know, he had, if I'm trying to remember, he had to go pick something up or had to go visit him. And she realized that she had this link with these kids because she realized that Freddie is after them too. And so he realized that she can connect with them. So he kind of uses her as a kind of like a assistant in a way. And he starts to realize that this is really real. And actually, Kristen, she's actually not in the hospital for the whole movie. Halfway through, she actually gets out and goes home Mm. Um, because she was only put on like a 72 hour watch after she tried to, you know, commit suicide or, you know, as they thought that she tried to commit suicide. Right. And she goes back to school and then she gets teased because the students find out, oh, you were in the nut house, you know, and so she actually gets kind of bullied, you know, through that. And some of the character names are different, like Will, his name is Laredo. And he's actually the one who builds the house, not Kristen. Uh, okay. Karen is a young black girl. And what was I want to think? Kincaid, he actually wasn't even in Springwood. And none of, most of the kids didn't even know each other. Like some were found outside of Springwood, but with these issues that they kind of collected and brought to the hospital. So that actually kind of made it different too. And Kristen's power, she could use that anywhere. She didn't have to just use that while she was sleeping. There was a point where they were kind of trapped and, you know, they're all with her and she uses her power and they land in the middle of her living room at home where her parents are having a dinner party. So it was almost like she could teleport everybody everywhere. And so her dad was actually in this version and Freddie ends up killing her mom and her dad at the party. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was wild and I, I was like, wow. And Freddie was dark. Like, I would yeah. say actually even almost darker than he was in part one and part two. Like his, like his, he was super vulgar and just, you know, the way he was described, he was just super menacing and, you know, just terrifying. And I always said if they had done that version of Freddie, there's no way they could have made the leap to MTV Freddie for part four. Cause I felt like the right. part three that we had, it was kind of like a blend. It was a, you kind of had dark Freddie, but then you kind of had this, you know, kind of Joker Freddy. So it was this like kind of blend that now you can almost believe it a little bit that he could kind of transcend into what we see in Nightmare 4. And Yeah, because yeah. he, he definitely has some of his most iconic lines from 3, like the mm-hmm. one-liners, but I think he's really dark in 3 still. And to, mm-hmm. and to hear that he's 
could have been even darker yeah it's insane to me <laughs> yeah it was yeah sometimes yeah you gotta it's on the nightmare companion they have the theatrical version and the original draft by west and bruce and it's written in script form so it wouldn't take you know it doesn't take very long to read i probably right. read it you... like three or four times but one of the best parts i love is that nancy because i've always felt that this should have been how it went she doesn't fall for freddie's glamour in west's original script or west and bruce's original script mm-hmm like Freddie is glam glammed as her father and he's like saying, Oh, it's all good, we're good, and you know, this and she kinda leans into leans into hugging or either that or she's kinda standing back and then something hits her and she's like, You're not my father, you know. And he's like, What what are you talking about? And she says, No, you're not my father. And then he changes back and he realizes it didn't work. And I said that actually was more to who Nancy was than what we got in the theatrical version. Cause to me, yeah. When it got, because actually the script got rewritten by Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell. And to me, I felt like the way Nancy had got at the end, it was more for shock value. And I felt like that diminished her character a little bit because, you know, we all know how strong she is and she knows what Freddie can do. And she's very savvy to his tricks because she's known him for so long and has known like what he can do. And I felt like that kind of d- diminished her character a little bit. So I always like to, you know, really, when I think about Nightmare 3, I always just think about the original version and try to always keep that in my mind when I'm watching Nightmare 3, because it's always like a slap in the face when, you know, when she gets, you know, stabbed, because to me, it just felt like, you know, well, because technically she does die in the original script, but her and Freddie actually go out in a blaze of glory almost, like they kind of basically, like she one-ups him more than he gets her. And, gotcha. you know, he's just able to kind of get her in that right spot to where, you know, he actually dies first and she tells them, you know, she, that she's so proud of them and they were really, you know, warriors. And right before she passes, she says to tell Neil that she loves him, but she doesn't get to finish. And then she passes away and her body actually fades away. Like a Jedi? Like transcends, but not like you see her transcend upwards, but she just kind of dematerializes. Like her body's there, then it just kind of fades away. Okay. In a sense, like because when you first said that, I'm thinking like Yoda in Return of the Jedi or like Obi Wan. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, yeah, it's just more like a, like a fade out. I think th- this is mostly because it wasn't in, in the in the dream. But then at the end, it's like several months later, and the only survivors in that one are Neil and Kristen. Nobody else survived in that original. Okay. Script. And they're having dinner together, and you know, time has passed because it says like Kristen's hair is shorter and you know they're they're just having dinner together and he, Kristen asks him if he's going to see her later and he says yeah he said so he said as soon as he gets his good sleep he's going to see her because that really confirms that Nancy was the guardian of the good dreams now mm-hmm. so she's like kind of crossed over but she's still there I didn't know like any of that so that's something I need to get my hands on so I can read um because I'm fascinated by that what could have been even though I love the final product um, I mm-hmm. love Dream Warriors, right. but I'm still interested of what could have been. Uh, I love that stuff. Oh, yeah. I do got to say, like though, I do got to say, I think I personally think Freddy is the scariest in part three for me personally, mm-hmm. even though he does have some some amazing one liners that make me laugh to this day. <laughs> of course, um, like you are 100% right. It is a transition to MTV Freddy, like no doubt. But at the same, I think why he, for me, he's the scariest in Dream Warriors is they really, and this probably comes from the original script that Wes and Bruce, right? Uh, Wagner, right? yep. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bruce Wagner. When Freddy goes after the kids, he's like, I think part three is where he's the meanest in the way he kills the kids. I 100% agree with that. Because <laughs> like I mean... in the later and and like the first movie didn't have the budget to play too much with the dream stuff. So we were yeah. used to see the outwards. And I haven't seen two as much as I've seen a lot of the other ones. So I don't remember, but I think two was kind of the same way as the first one in terms yeah. of kills. Yeah, it's very um, straightforward, you know, nothing, you know. Yeah. Well, well, the biggest one is just, you know, when Freddy emerges out of Jesse's body, that whole. Oh, like that know, whole that, alien kind of. Yeah, yeah. I, I remembered that. That was pretty much like the most fantastic to me Rock. scene in the whole movie. But most of the kills are just very like he stabs them or cuts them and, you know, it wasn't tear and gets it with the you know the injection or you know let's get high yeah you know it wasn't you know nightmare three was definitely the most imaginative of all the nightmares to me in terms and of and like in like four and five i'm i don't want to say because i i love I, I love all the nightmare movies but i do think like in four and five those characters are not written as well mm-hmm. um especially the characters who are just written to be freddy fodder yeah (laughs) (laughs) like the one i think it's in five the one girl her character traits are i work out and hate bugs so oh that's in uh is that four dream dream master debbie yeah okay that's four okay i i get four and five confused sometimes i like i like them both but sometimes i mix up which happens in which (laughs) but like her character traits are that and then it's like okay so her nightmare sequence is her working out and then being turned into a bu- which is awesome don't get me wrong but like in dream warriors when taryn gets killed she fears relapsing and right. like falling to drugs that's a real like not to say that being afraid of bugs isn't real i'm arachnophobic <laughs> so, <laughs> but like there's something nastier i think about attacking that kind of fear as right. opposed to like Freddy's fighting Indiana Jones and making him fight a snake. Ooh, you know. <laughs> right. So, uh, which that would have been like w- the ultimate 80s battle, Indiana Jones versus Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely would have been a crazy battle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that, yeah, that kind of goes into play like, you know, just saying like how it's deeper because Freddy knows that, that she fears that because he's already yeah. in her head. So he can, he manipulates that. And, you know, playing with Will, you know, he can walk in his dreams, but he, you know, has that crazy, you know, abominable wheelchair that was just all gnarlied out with, you know, all the spikes and stuff on it and like, you know, have a seat, you know, it's kind of that, that torture. And Freddie's the only one that can really do that. Right. And I don't think he gets the opportunity to really do that in the ones after yeah most of the time it just really connects to what it's like yeah they're fears but it wasn't like like i said deep fears like you know how it was right it's nightmare three yeah and i i like four and five because i think because i like alice mm-hmm. i think she's a great character i think she's well written and i think the beef between her and freddie's really awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love her growth you know she goes yeah like, kinda, exactly kind of meek you know kind of timid wallflower daydreamer girl to you know another you know warrior character especially from mm-hmm. you know I, I mean obviously from the, the beginning of part four to the end but then more when you see who she is more in part five she's very 
very vocal, very individualistic and very shrewd. And I mean, I, like I said, Nancy's like my top heroine, but I always did like Alice. Always felt like more Nancy had more of that. that always felt that Nancy and Freddie's battle was more prevalent or iconic, yeah. you know, because eventually their battles come off the screen and into the real world, you know. Which right. Means, so I always said Alice was Freddie's penultimate you know battle but nancy was his ultimate battle because i always felt that nancy she was pretty much in danger from the beginning and she you know this isn't like oh she finds out you know 15 minutes before the movie ends that something bad's going on she pretty much knows it from the get-go and she decides to do something about it whereas alice was almost used as a tool because now she has the gifts that Kristen passed on to her so she freddie is using her he's not necessarily after her he's after the people around her and he's using her. I'm not saying that that's important because she has to live with that. You know, she's struggling to stay awake because if she doesn't, someone, somebody else that she loves is going to die. You know, and I, I kind of wish that they had given more to Alice and like her being being used like that in part four because it also happens in part five because Freddie doesn't really want to kill her because now he's using the dreams of her unborn fetus. You know, right. so it's, she's it's like. It's like she's not really in danger to the end of both movies because, you know, in part four, they had that battle and it was at the end. In part five, they had that battle, you know, and that was like at the end because he wasn't really after her, after her in a sense. Even though I always loved that part, you know, part five where he just emerges from her body, just like their faces are just like intense. Oh, just when I think I first saw that when I was like six years old in daycare. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I was like, in yeah, daycare. Somebody brought, yeah, somebody actually brought that VHS tape today. I'll never forget when I tell that story. People are like, "Are you serious?" I said, "I swear." <laughs> I said, I, "I could not make that up if I wanted to." Somebody brought that in to my daycare, and oh my it was the uncensored version at the time. Like you know, so it was the whole thing with Greta, where like she would swallow the food and Freddie would scoop it up and feed it Ugh. back to her. The one that was more gruesome, yeah. you know, and Dan's you know motorcycle annihilation where he all the wires and stuff are just intertwining with his veins and flesh and you know it was even more i was i don't know why they have not released that to disc yet because that that (laughs) that unrated version is really i love the unrated version of nightmare five it's just they did some really cool things in that but i've always kind of felt that parallel between nancy and alice like i said to where i felt like nancy was pretty much always in danger and that's why she was basically Freddie's ultimate because that was Wes's way of bringing Nancy back to life and make it make sense. Heather accepted to play her in the real world and now she's resurrected in the film world. And I always say that that's a way that they could use every single sequel for Nightmare on Elm Street, including Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And like I read, I wrote my own fan fiction for it like years ago, probably like back in 2005 when I was getting my feet more wet and trying to do longer stories. Because I used to write short stories as a kid and mm-hmm. as a teenager, and I was like, I want to write like yeah. a longer story, a book. And so I was like, before I actually came up with some original ideas, I said, well, let me tell a story that you know that I kind of know and kind of expand on. And I wrote my own fan fiction for Nightmare, and it was called After the Nightmare. And it basically picks up right where part one leaves off. And the whole ending of that is Nancy's nightmare. She's actually asleep on the couch downstairs. So that whole scene where she thinks her friends are alive and everything's good, you know, it ultimately is like another nightmare. Um, But Freddie's gone. But that was just her nightmare that just reassured her that even though she defeated Freddie, all of her friends and her mother are still gone. You know, she can't bring them back. It's like she thought she could. 
and so it just goes on from there and i use like obviously some of the stuff from the innovative comics where you know nancy gets put in the institution herself in my version i have her meet chris higgins in there because at the end of friday three chris higgins kind of goes a little bit off the rails after what she's been through and she's one of the few people that believes nancy because of what she just went through with jason in friday three she knows that you know there's otherworldly things and so she totally believes nancy and nancy looks at her as like a older sister and you know nancy meets this guy in there named thaddeus that she really connects with and so instead of going back home she stays with him even though she's a teenager her, her mom like she or no i had it to where nancy was living with an aunt and lived in the same town that wasn't springwood so they get closer and he's the one that gives nancy the malaysian dream dolls a gift and just kind of see them growing up together and being together and he actually relapses and goes back into the asylum because his issues were more psychological where he had bipolar issues but you know this is supposed to be the 80s and that wasn't really something that was talked about or people didn't really know about it too much mm-hmm. and when he kind of has that relapse about it he you know Nancy's trying to be there for him but he doesn't want her to be around him and see him like that he wants to get better and then once he's good then they can reconnect but this is all the while she's getting her studies in school and doing her research that leads to her going into Weston Hills. So a few weeks before she goes to Weston Hills, he actually gets out, but he wants to kind of get himself cleaned up and, you know, maybe, you know, get a place and, you know, then they can reconnect. But then once he realize, once he goes through that and finds out Nancy's been killed by Freddie and he's just like, you know, devastated and he's at her funeral and so is Chris Higgins. And so now it kind of, where Nancy left off, he kind of picks up and he starts to learn more about Springwood. And he's the one that leaves the flowers at Nancy's grave. Like you see at part four, you see those mm. old flowers. And so it kind of goes on through four or five and six through him throughout the years and him making entries in a journal and up into, and he would always dream about her, as I put it, because she's the guardian of the good dreams. So she would visit gotcha. him in his dreams, but he, he would wake up, but he wouldn't know like, is that really her? Is it just me just wanting to see her or? You know, just because he, he just wasn't sure. And by the time Freddie's dead comes about and Freddie's gone, it's like he can feel that, that Freddie is actually gone. But after that, where he lives, it's just nothing but gray clouds for months and months and months. There's no sunshine. And for, he doesn't understand. It's almost like rain should be falling, but it just won't. It's just like just gray. Just everything feels grayed out. There's no vibrancy. There's no colors because this is all the while Wes Craven in the real world is writing Wes Craven's new nightmare. And so when that moment when Nancy accepts or when Heather accepts to play Nancy one last time, the rain finally falls. Mm-hmm. And Nancy in the in or Nancy herself actually is resurrected. And He's trying to sleep, but he can't. And he hears a knock on his door and he opens his door and it's Nancy standing there. And he thinks he's dreaming, but it's not because she really is there. And Nancy has these memories of being this woman named Heather, you know, in Hollywood. And she had a son and it's almost like it fades a little bit. And she also has her recollection of being the guardian of the good dreams. And so now that she's kind of resurrected, it's not like she's inhuman, but she's a little bit more than human. Yeah. It was like whenever she falls asleep now, she can still be the guardian and she's created like this world for all the victims of Freddy Krueger. So in a way they can kind of live out their lives, but not in reality, but in this dream and like they age, but no, they'll never die in a sense because now they're eternal. But it's like they can kind of 
live a life and that would lead into like a modern sequel that I've done and because I mean just because I love this series so much like that would be something that I would want to see and like I said something you could do to use every single sequel instead of saying how they've done now where oh it's only part one and none of the other sequels ever happened you know yeah we don't want to throw shade to other franchises like Halloween Right, you know, <laughs> right, and you know, and I feel like doing it that way would make so much sense because of what Wes did in Wes Craven's new Nightmare. Yeah, no, that so, makes sense, and because with Nightmare, there is a fantastical element where you can do that, and mm-hmm. it's still within the rules established by the previous films. Right, like you couldn't do, you can't do that with. Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that's why there's like 1900 different timelines <laughs> in that franchise and I, I'm I'm joking like I'm throwing a little bit of shade I love the Texas Chainsaw movies but like right. Nightmare could get away with that pretty easily because of the reasons you, you just said you know right it's a it's a fantasy horror that's what I call Nightmare yeah. is a fantasy horror film so the rules are different as opposed to exactly. like Friday the 13th or Halloween which are supposed to be more dipped into reality like only somebody like jason could come back to life or michael could come back to life because they're the only ones that are superhuman or supernatural but it, with nightmare you know you have these kids who have dream powers right you know and there's just there's much more of, of an innovation to that you know makes it like it's like I said a fantasy to that to where it's just in its own world in a sense yeah and i think nightmare is unique in that regard because there's other supernatural slashers, mm-hmm. but I think they're in more grounded worlds where, like you said, the nightmare world is fantastical. Because, like, I'm think like, when I think of supernatural, like, Chucky's one, and there's yeah. a little bit of fantasy oh, in yeah. it, but it's kind of like a magical realism instead of a true fantasy, I think, in Child's Absolutely. Play. Absolutely. And then Candyman who Candyman I think is really interesting because he on he on a very surface level is kind of a slasher because he, mm-hmm. you know, splits people from groin to gullet. Like yeah. <laughs> that's what slashers <laughs> do. But he is if you want to talk about like slasher films go, going be, are not slasher films because Candyman, I do not think is a slasher movie. Right. But oh, I think yeah, Candyman is a slasher. Mm-hmm. If that makes but Candyman, like that's a movie that really that's dramatic horror. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like people, it's like bedtime stories or stories thrown around in the streets is what keeps yeah. him alive. And he has to make sure that those stories are told so he can still be alive. Like how he says, he said, if these stories aren't told, then I'm nothing. So yeah. that's why he said he has to shed innocent blood because otherwise he's not going to be there. And it's like, and that story is one of the ones where I feel like it's not that I'm rooting for him to kill, like, you know, innocent people, but once you know his story, it's like people and, you know, racism basically turned him into what he is. Yeah, he's a symptom of systemic horrors, really. Right. He wasn't like this diabolical fiend who was, you know, killing people when he was alive. He was a painter. He was an artist. He just fell in love with this woman. But in a time period he was in, that was unacceptable. So he had to be, you know, wiped out. And so basically he was created out of hate and anger and you know so that's pretty much what he has and all he is is hate and anger yeah and i'm i'm thinking of so many like similarities and differences right now between freddy krueger and Candyman. because mm-hmm. if because if you think they're both like because when you were saying how Candyman's only kept alive through stories i realized freddy's the same way 
Freddy loses mm-hmm. power when he's forgotten. Like right. that's the whole point of Freddy versus Jason, which I think mm-hmm. is the best. Like, I think that's a brilliant concept. Actually, you don't you don't expect an idea that good out of a movie called Freddy versus Jason, but Freddy versus Jason's really good. I think people have been reevaluating that one as well. But like, and then you know they're both got slasher weapons on their right hand. <laughs> is Candyman yeah. on his right hand or is he on his left? Right. I think he's right. I, I forget. Probably, yeah, I think I think it is. I think it is on his right hand. But they both. But you know, they both have <laughs> that one hand, which is a weapon, and then um, they both dress kind of fancy. Like Candyman's very fancy. That coat. No, like that coat. Yeah, mm. that thick coat. <laughs> yeah, and Freddie has his Freddie has his fedora on. He's kind of classy. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, but like. The main difference which separates them by a lot, in my opinion, is you're absolutely right about Candyman. He is a victim as well as a victimizer. Yeah. You know, as well as a villain, I guess would have been the easier thing to say because he is a villain. He takes his like because Candyman spreads his terror within the black community, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's a that's bad guy shit. But yeah. He didn't set out. To, he was just a painter who fell in love in a, in a society that did not want love between a black and a white person. Right. Whereas Freddy Krueger is a child murderer. Right. And <laughs> like then he, he made, was. He, yeah. He made his choice. Like he made his choice what he wanted to do. And he like took pleasure in it, you know. Yeah. But Candyman only kills because that's the only way he can survive. Not because. I don't never feel like he enjoys the kill. Whenever I see him, it's like, you called me, right. so now I have to do this. So it's more like, well, Freddie was like, he enjoyed the torture. He enjoyed, yeah, you know, killing teenagers. Because it's like, Freddie, he could, you know, he could kill them, like, immediately when they're in the dreams. But he, like, like he did with Tina, he, like, called her. He's like, Tina. Like, you know, basically, like, come out, come out. Like, he wanted to have that fear build up because that's what's basically giving him his power is that fear. And that's what I love about yeah. that when Nancy figures that out because, it is like, can you think like, okay, how am I going to defeat something like this? This thing that's in my dreams that can be anything, do anything like, you know, it's almost, he's almost like indestructible, but it's the most simple thing that you can think of. And it's almost biblical that, yeah. you know, don't fear. And West put a, I think West put a lot of biblical things that like, you know, the sins of the parents have now passed down to the children. And the only way to defeat this evil is to not fear it. And like, that's biblical. It's like you don't you don't fear things. You put everything in God's hands. And yeah. you know, but in this way you're Nancy's taking it within herself to cast that fear aside. It's not that, you know, not saying that she's fearless, but she has that heroine mentality or that shrewd mentality that says there's more than just fear at play. So she's going in with everything. And then right at that moment when she's in that bedroom, it's like now she takes control of the whole thing. And I feel like Freddie is literally crumbling before her. No, she already burned him again. And he's just like, oh, you think you're going to get away from me? He's, like, he's already, you know, disintegrating. Not like, you know, physically in that moment, but we can just hear it in his voice. He's he's almost becoming weaker because before we've seen him, he's just, we're running from him or like we're terrified of him. Yeah. But it's like he's, he's shrinking at that moment because now she's just like taking complete control. And I re- that's why I really love 
that moment with Nancy. And like, that's really what made her my favorite heroine was that moment in that bedroom where she just has her back turned to him and then she faces him. And, you know, she's not like shrieking back. She's just looking at him with those eyes, just looking at him like, I figured it out. You know, you're nothing, you know, or she don't, she said, I take back every bit of energy I gave you. You're nothing. You're shit. You know, she just kind of has that, like, why was I ever scared of you in the first place? Type of, you know, the yeah. way she did it just turns back around and then he's just gone because she figured it out. And I remember reading in the book, the Never Sleep Again book, how Wes said he needed Nancy to be completely alone in that moment. Like that, no, her father had to, her father had to leave. It had to be her and Freddie because those moments with the characters, because she's the one that's been dealing with him this entire time. So they had to have that particular face off together. And, you know, yeah. I, I love, I love that moment. You know, and I think that's why I never leaned more towards Laurie Strode. And not and I'm saying not not to bash her. Cause I was like, when I try to explain to people, like, oh, so why are you like knocking on Laurie Strode? Yeah. Okay, I'm definitely not <laughs> knocking her. But hers was more where I see Nancy as a heroine. I see her Laurie Strode is more just like a final girl. Like she just like almost happened to survive, you know, because yeah. you know, Dr. Loomis came and he shot him and and she, you know, she even says it like, you know, she's been running for when she we finally see her later. She's been running for 20 years, you know, when she comes back in, you know, parts in H2O. Where So when I was younger, you know, obviously I was born in like the later 80s. So, you know, all I had seen her in was Halloween 1 and 2. Whereas yeah. Nightmare, I saw, you know, I saw one, then I saw three, then I saw seven, you know, in these these sequences. And then, you know, Scream came along and I've seen Hellraiser. So I've seen a lot of these strong heroines. Like Nancy Thompson, Sydney Prescott, Kirsty Cotton. So they're actually my top three heroines. Mm-hmm. And so when Lori came in later, it's like I'd actually already had those people established because now she's already doing so she's doing what I've seen these other heroines do before her. Because now she finally stopped running. She goes after Michael, but Nancy already went after Freddie, you know, years before. Yeah. I mean, it was good to see that moment because I love that moment. You know, she has that accent, you know, she just locks herself in the school and just yells his name but like i said nancy did you know she was calling freddie out in the boiler room like you know i'm here so she'd already kind of done those things i've seen some of these other heroines do those things so that's why laurie strode was never high on my list not to say mm-hmm. i don't like laurie strode i loved her evolution but those earlier heroines kind of really stuck to me yeah you know early on and i think you know early on when you're a kid that stuff really it really connects you and that's what you you know when you think about nostalgia and you know you go back to those things that really you know kind of brought you in that's always why i always kind of felt that way with you know nancy thompson versus laura strode like west just had like we said before had just this magic to him that his heroines just they really stuck (laughs) to like like i said nancy and sydney are my like like they're like my top two, you know, Nancy, Sydney, and then Kirsty, you know, those three. And then my actually went, yeah. took me a while to come up with my list, but my complete top five. So after Kirsty, it would be Chris Higgins from Friday Three, and then actually Kara Strode. Mm. People are always surprised to hear me say that. They said Kara Strode. I was like, yeah, Kara Strode is actually my fifth favorite heroine. And that is to me because Kara, she broke all the rules, you know, because, you know, back in the 80s and all that, they established, oh, yeah. if you have sex or do drugs and this and that, you're going to die. Well, not only did she have sex, but she <laughs> had a child out of wedlock. And, you know, she was already very vocal. And her, her dad called her son a bastard. And she's, <laughs> you know, only see one bastard in this. I mean, I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, you know, like right out the gate, it wasn't like she shrunk and was just like, you know, 
well, let's just go. And like, like, no, she was very forthright. You know, she spoke up and yeah, I thought she was very strong. You know, I heard that was H6 was actually the first Halloween I ever saw in theaters. So it, it kind of holds a special place, <laughs> special place for me. I feel I mean, that, man, I'm loving this. This is, <laughs> this has been so much fun. This conversation flew by. I do have to ask, because it is the title of the show. If you find yourself not enough going to dreamland, but this dream ain't right, you already know you're in a Freddy nightmare. (laughs) Would you die? I would say no. And I say that just because of what I've been through, you know, already in my life, what my personal creed is Mm -hmm. and, you know, how, how now being older, I can stop, examine, and figure out, you know, not saying like it's, like I said before, not being where I'm like fearless, you know, but try to work through those situations because there's always a way out. You just have to find it. You have to give yourself that time to find it. You have to, you know, I mean, obviously in some moments you have to think fast, but when you can really kind of dive into what's happening and break everything down, I feel like you can always come out on the other side. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to give myself a 50-50% chance of surviving <laughs> Freddy Krueger because I'm going to be because I'm going to be honest with myself. I actually think me as a person has a chance against Freddy because there are a select a very very small select group of villains I would survive. Cuz normally when I do this show, people pick the xenomorph or jason Voorhees or whoever Mm -hmm. and it's like no i'm not gonna survive a xenomorph like (laughs) let's be real jason jason will get me in whatever way you can if i was in a jigsaw trap i would i would die i would do Mm -hmm. the bare minimum amount of effort (laughs) (laughs) so the trap would begin and then i'd be like i'm sorry because I, I, I don't do pain like i don't Mm -hmm. like it and i know i just have a low time so i'm just like First right. off, first off, if I was in a jigsaw trap, I'm reevaluating my life choices. I'm like, how <laughs> the hell did I get? What did I do so wrong? But with Freddie and I'm going to put Pennywise in this group as well. Mm-hmm. You can beat them by roasting the shit out of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you stand up to your, you just stand up for yourself right. and take away their power. Yeah, so, Freddie is, is basically a metaphor. Yeah, he's a metaphor for all the the things that are going wrong in your life. He's just manifested into this thing. And it's up to us to, you know, it's like grief, you know, like going into like a new movie, Smile. Like, that's why I Mm -hmm. actually enjoyed. That was one of my favorite, like newer movies of last year was Smile. Because to me, Smile was a metaphor of what happens if you hold on to grief for too long. You know, people say grief will destroy you from the inside out because what you're supposed to do you know, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're not human or we're not, we're not perfect. <laughs> right. Um, so we are human, but we're not perfect humans. So, so of course, grieve, but don't get stuck in that grief. You grieve and then you right. move on. You, you never forget it. You just learn to live with it, you know? Right. And Freddie is this thing where, you know, he's all the bad things that you have to overcome, where, whether it is that, that alcoholism that for a family member or drugs, or maybe, you know, something happened to you, uh, like you were attacked, like a woman, she could be raped or, or maybe you survived a trauma, you know, it, it lives in our brains because we'll never forget it. And if you 
give it power, it's going to destroy you. Right. Because now I don't like you're not handling it. So it's becoming its own force. And that's basically what Freddie is. Freddie is basically what the parents turned him into because of their anger and their loss from their children from before. So now the new kids are suffering the consequences of that, all that hurt and anger that they felt. And now they have to overcome this new manifestation. And that's basically what Nancy is doing. You know, she had to overcome, you know, she had to overcome her mother's alcoholism because she puts her mother to bed, taking away her liquor bottle. You know, she's more of the adult than her own mother. She basically, like she said, she said, I know the secret now. To me, she figured out that she just had to overcome what was going on in her life to basically, um, to to basically move on. Because in the original script of this, Nightmare was just supposed to be one elongated dream. And to me, that initial idea of what Wes had was that all the things that are going in, wrong in Nancy's life has manifested into this thing known as Freddy Krueger. And it was her way, her young mind dealing with this pain that she's going through. And in the end, she she learned how to accept it and defeat it and move on from it. Wow. I love that, man. I I got nothing to add. You've said it perfectly. And that's <laughs> that's the best place. Uh, that's the best place to leave off at. So where can where can the people listening find you and your books? Oh, uh, you can find my books on Amazon. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. All my links to my books are all on my social medias and my bios, and it will take you directly to my Amazon page. Awesome. Uh, any Anything coming up for you that you want people to know? Or Well, we, we've already put out Fredhead, so if you haven't seen it, it's available on DVD, Prime Video, and Tubi. Um, right now, I'm working on my 11th book. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully that'll be out. Uh, I'll be uh, getting through that pretty soon here coming through the next year um working on some stuff with my team that we might be diving into uh, next year creative wise um so kind of watch out for that awesome i'm excited to hear all that and i have seen fredheads so if you're listening you guys got to check it out it's a it's really a stellar documentary and um if you're interested in what it means to be a horror fan you got to watch fredheads right just to know that in this community, we're all in it together. We've all been through things, but this community is just such a tight community, this horror community. That's really what yeah. we wanted to show, like how horror, how people look at it as this, oh, this crazy thing by only crazy people watch, but it's really this beautiful thing that's brought so many amazing people together. And that's it, kind of what we wanted to show. And I think you guys succeeded because it truly is. And I think it, I think it shines beautifully in the film. Awesome. I appreciate that. That's what we, we wanted people to get. We wanted people to see that. Oh, yeah. So, guys, check it out. Check out um, Anthony's books. And, uh, Anthony, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. It was a blast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks again to Anthony for joining me. And don't forget to follow him on the socials, check out his novels, and check out the documentary Fredheads. That film features him and a friend of the podcast, Deandra, from Captain Sassy Media. So a lot of our friends are Fredheads. I think it's on Tubi. You definitely need to check that out. It's awesome, guys. A reminder, I just became an affiliate for Fangoria, one of the premier brands in horror. 
I definitely recommend checking out their magazine and even subscribing. And if you decide to do that, don't forget to get to use the promo code Would You Die Show for 20% off your entire order. You can find the show's social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Would You Die Show. Also, now you can follow me on TikTok at Would You Die Podcast. You can find the Would You Die YouTube show on the Three Wise Men Media YouTube channel, where you can find professional wrestling, trailer reviews, and much, much more. The music you hear in the beginning and end of each episode is composed by my friend, Josie Palmer. Next week, we will be shining a light on slashers that just don't give enough credit. Lots of hidden gems to discuss. Until next time, I'm Austin Torres. Try not to die.